what was your uh, beginnings in in these kind of areas? What started you off in having the interest to search for this kind of thing? I woke I know up that when it's... I was twenty four. I was in New York. I was a screenwriter. I'd just gotten out of the army in the Vietnam period. <clears throat> and I went to a party that Truman Capote gave. And as I was walking down the hall, I went down to the, go to the bathroom. And as I came back, I walked by this antique Italian mirror. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I said very spontaneously and to my own surprise, you are becoming an unattractive person. Your values are screwed up. And I left the party and uh, slept on the beach and went into Manhattan the following morning and, and uh, got in my car and drove back, left New York and drove back to Virginia where I'm from. And um, was I lived in rural Tidewater, Virginia, down on the Chesapeake Bay. And one day I was uh, sitting there uh, on the porch and I looked up and there was this middle-aged couple. I was then 23 and a half. There was this middle-aged couple walking in my mother's gardens, which were about 17 acres. So it was a it was a property that had several hundred acres. And um, the woman walked, they saw me looking at them and the woman walked over and, and uh, I opened the screen door to let them into the porch and um, that he looked vaguely familiar. And, and uh, she, the first thing she said to me was, do you believe in reincarnation? before she even introduced herself. That was the first thing she said. And I said, I grew up in a family that was utterly uninvolved with any kind of religion at all. And I thought about it for a second and said, well, I don't know very much about it, but it sounds very symmetrical to me. So yes, I probably do. And she said, do you know who Edgar Casey is? And I said, no. And, um, I said, wait, but before we get to that, you know, who are you? And they <laughs> the introduced themselves. Turned out he was a production designer in a rather successful film called uh, the, the Seven Samurai. I think, that, wait a minute, is that right? Seven Samurai? Seven. Anyway, I had met him at a, at a, uh, uh, film festival i didn't know him but we you know we shaken hands and i said to her how did you how, you know why are you here how did you get here and she said well i had a dream that told me to come up and invite you down to virginia beach and i'm supposed to introduce you to edgar casey and that was so weird that i just didn't know what to do with that and um <clears throat> about uh she asked me for my telephone number, and just as she did that, uh, a bunch of uh, a, a, a green Ford station wagon came down my road, and there was a young couple in it, and she gave, I gave her my telephone number, and they drove away, and I thought, what the hell just happened? And about a week later, I got a call from a guy, and he invited me down to Virginia Beach, and I went down to Virginia Beach, and which was about 
two hours away from where I lived in Gloucester. And a young woman was there waiting for me and, and uh, she took me up to the ARE and explained to me what she understood about the ARE. And it, we went into the library and she said, well, these are all of Edgar Casey's readings. And there were all these green three ring binders like school binders <laughs> with, and she said, those are all the readings. And I said, how many of them are there? And she said, well, I don't know about 15,000. And at random, I just pulled one off the shelf and opened it up and it made my hair stand on end because it was a reading given in 1936 for a woman and it told her that she had been a member of the Essene community at Kerbet Qumran where she had been a teacher of astrology. And the I had worked for, before I got drafted, I worked for National Geographic. And the first article I had done for them was about, uh, not the first, the last, before I went into the service, the last article I did for them was about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I knew that in 1936, Nobody knew that Kerbet Qumran existed or that the Essene community lived there. And uh, it was thought that the Essenes were a schismatic order of Jewish men and that no women were involved. And yet the excavation of, well, in 1947, 11 years after he had given the reading, <clears throat> a young Bedouin tribes boy who was chucking rocks into a cave heard a clunk and that's how they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the scrolls established that the, this, these ruins were in fact um, a scene and excavation revealed that women were involved and the scrolls themselves are obsessed with astrology. And so I asked myself as I was standing there in the library how in the world could this man have gotten this information in 1936? Where was it to go get? And how did he do it? Yes, absolutely. So, did so I, that started me on what became five years of reading all of the Edgar Casey readings from start to finish and everything ever published on the field of parapsychology. Mm. Did you um, come at this? Because I imagine... Um, when you first started there was as there is now a lot of skepticism around these kind of what people would call mystical kind of um experiences and mystical writings did you approach it with a skeptical attitude and did you find a lot of resistance to your research going forward um by the time i was finished reading the casey readings i didn't have any doubt that it existed so i wasn't really very interested in that and i uh, as I said, I read all of the, I read, I started reading after three years of reading the readings, it took me about five years to read them. I decided I wanted to know what science had to say about this. So I started reading from the beginning. Again, I'm very methodical. I started with the very first article in the very first journal on parapsychology <clears throat> and I read everything that had been published up to that time, which is about 1966. In 1968, I started experimenting. And I started out because I realized from the Casey readings that all the senses reported, 
I created a grid in my back garden uh, that started out as 12, a, a grid of 12 squares. And, and I outlined it with yellow um, ship's uh, rope. And then it became 144 squares. And I would bury things in, in um, uh, mason jars or film canister, 35 millimeter film canisters. And I would send out mimeographed forms with the drawing of the grid. And I would ask people to locate the, which grid I had buried the, uh, the bottle or whatever it was. Mm, and, square. Uh, and if they could locate it, then describe it for me. And I found out people could do that. And so um, that's how I started experimenting. And I read all of the transcendentalist stuff and Gurdjieff and Uspensky and Steiner and Blavatsky and Bailey and Ledbetter and um, all of the sort of metaphysical 19th century, early 20th century metaphysical stuff. And I thought it was interesting from an anthropological point of view But anyway, I started experimenting and um, because I wanted to see if other people could do some variant of what Casey was doing and discovered that they could. Maybe not as well as he could do it, but they could do it. And because I came out of an anthropological orientation, um, I was reading in the various journals that in archaeology that the big struggle was where to dig, because most archaeological sites at that time <clears throat> were found serendipitously. You know, a farmer plowing in a field discovered a tomb, or a road crew building a highway turned up a temple or something. Yeah, happened upon it by chance. And so the, I, that was perfect from my point of view, because it allowed me to design experiments that were unimpeachably triple blind. Everybody agreed that they knew where something was, that, that something existed, but they also agreed they didn't know where it was. And so if you could find it with what I originally called distant viewing, um, and you could not only locate it, but describe what would be there when you went there, um, that you had pure triple blind conditions, and therefore uh, you could create an unimpeachable chronology of prediction and then field work and discovery. So I started doing that. And the first one I did was the Talking Idol of Ixchel in Cozumel Island in Mexico. And then I, um, I, I, my wife got pregnant and I needed to make more money. And I went back to Washington, DC and, and I ended up becoming the special assistant to the chief of Naval operations. And while I was there, um, the, uh, a friend of mine who was the head of the CIA, I never worked for the government because I wouldn't do classified research, um, began sending me papers written by a guy named Leonid Vasiliev in the Soviet Union. And Vasiliev was trying to answer what was then one of the most important questions in consciousness research. And that is, is it electromagnetic? And um, he had put people in mine shafts and 
down in caves and put them in Faraday cages in the mine shafts or the caves to shield from electromagnetic radiation. And he eventually got it down to ELF, three to 300 Hertz. Uh, but, and he, and Vasiliev said in these documents that they would get, and I don't know where they got them, but they would send me translations and, um, He finally uh, got to a point where he, he realized that he had eliminated all of the EM spectrum except ELF. And he tried to get, uh, the only way you could shield from ELF was seawater at great depth. And he tried to do an experiment. I went to Admiral Gorshkov, who was the head of the, who created the Soviet Blue Water Navy, to do the experiment, and he couldn't do it. Uh, Gorshkov wouldn't do it. I don't know why. And I read this. And as it happened, uh, the Navy was spending, had spent $125 million because they got interested in ELF as a way to communicate with the uh, deep missile submarines and deep ocean missile submarines. So they'd spent a great deal of money figuring exactly how deep you had to go and also the bit rate of transmission how much information you can put across. And it turns out with ELF, you can get very, very little information. If you saw the movie, The Search for Red October, you may remember the scene in which um, they get this signal and it's like one, two, three, four, and they go to a book and they open it up and one, two, three, four means target a particular city. And that actually is how it's done today. But in any case, um, I, uh, uh, I realized that the submarine was the way to go. Vasilya was right because the Project Elf or Project Sanguine, as it came to be known, had proved that, uh, uh, that he was correct. And I went to, uh, as it happened, uh, a little while later, I was flying up to Groton, Connecticut for the launch of a new submarine, missile submarine. And I flew up with John Warner, who was Secretary of the Navy, who asked me to come along. And um, on the plane was Hyman Rickover, who created the nuclear Navy. And I asked him if he would let me uh, do this experiment that Vasiliev had described. And he thought about it and he called me a couple of weeks later, a week later and said, you know, that's a really interesting experiment, but no, I'm not going to do it. And I said, why not? And he said, well, because the media will get hold of it inevitably. And um, they'll talk about the deep ocean missile submarines and we don't want to do that. So I thought, well, it's never going to happen. And then a couple of years later, I, I left government. I walked away from a career um, in government because of Watergate. And I knew all the people involved with Watergate. And I had written some speeches for Nixon. And I, I just didn't want to be in government because I couldn't tell the good guys from the bad guys. And I just couldn't operate like that. So I, I left. I resigned my position. And... Um, went out to, by then I was doing a lot of what I still call distant viewing. Remote viewing is a term 
coined in the early 70s by Ingo Swan, that's the one that stuck. It's a terrible term, as is distant viewing, because it has nothing to do with viewing. It has nothing to do with remote or distance. But in any case, that's what we knew at the time. So I, um, I went out uh, and wrote a book called The Secret Vaults of Time, which um, is about all the archaeological work using remote viewing prior to my becoming involved. Uh, because I wanted to know what, what anyone had done before me. So I wrote this book, and then I got offered a fellowship in Los Angeles. And I went out to Los Angeles, and I stayed with... Um, with a friend of mine who had been the deputy director of Navy Labs. Uh, and he and another friend of mine had retired from the Navy and had taken over the Institute of Marine and Coastal Studies at the University of Southern California. And when I was staying with him, he said, you know that funny submarine experiment you wanted to do? And I said, oh yeah, sure. And he said, well, as it happens, we have a small research submersible that is coming down to do its sea trials uh, at our Catalina Island facility. And we'll pay for three days to do that experiment. We'd like to see how it comes out. And that became a project called Deep Quest. And you can see it, it's, I made a movie out of it. I got Dr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy to oh, do yes. the narration. And um, I sent out a chart, a sea chart, and I asked, uh, 11 remote viewers to locate a previously unknown wreck on the seafloor and to describe uh, what would be there when we went, if we went to that site. Um, and um, we did go to that site and we did find it. And it was exactly as they described it down to the little details, the date that it sank, how it sank, why it sank, all of that that the remote viewers described turned out to be correct. Very specific detail. It's very specific. And the other thing was I had uh, invented what has now come to be called ARV, Associated Remote Viewing. And I created that protocol uh, because I wanted to see if you could communicate, you could send a communication um, that could be... Um, well, no, let me say that in doing all of this research, I had learned that analytical things like names or numbers are not very easy for remote viewers to get, but you could uh, create an association so that, for instance, a pair represented uh, a particular message and a pair of scissors represented another message, and then you could just get somebody to say, I'm going to show you a target. Can you describe it for me? And uh, if it was a pair, then you got that message. And if it was a scissors, it got that message. Right. So it worked through symbolism. So I put people at depth. Ingo Swan and Hella Hammond. And I got them to, rem to remote view where Russell Targ and Hal Putoff, I had just met the SRI guys. Um, literally, I mean, it was like a week before, uh, they, because they were the only other people that were doing anything like this. And um, so I asked, uh, I asked the reviewers to, to remote view where they were hiding. Uh, 
they were able to do it. And they were able to do it when they were at depth. So if you think about it, uh, first of all, the remote viewers who were scattered all over the world were able to penetrate the seawater down to the sea floor and describe the wreck. And then I could put them at depth and get them to reach out from the seawater to where people were hiding somewhere in Northern California. And they could do that as well. So clearly it could not be ELF and therefore remote viewing is not an electromagnetic phenomenon, which was, a, a, as I say, a big question at the time in 1972, uh, a, a guy named Michael Persinger at Laurentia University had written a, what had become a very um, well-studied paper arguing that it was ELF, that, that it could only be ELF. Uh, and, and I mean, this now this all seems very dated, but at the time, people thought what they were looking at was an electromagnetic phenomenon. If you think about it, telephony, telegraphy, telepathy. Yeah, I mean, people, reasonable they, they, their original conception of what was happening was that there were senders and receivers and signals. Yes, like yes, a reasonable, PM, like a radio, control. like a walkie-talkie. And what the, the Deep Quest experiment showed, and you can go to go up to YouTube or go to my personal website, stephanaschwartz.com, and you can watch the movie Deep Quest. You can see it happen. Um. And that began what became, I founded a lab called Mobius. And um, Mobius did remote viewing and consciousness research for 30, the next 30 years. And I did archaeological projects all over the world. And then I, I got interested in healing. And I showed that people who expressed therapeutic intention could change the, this molecular structure of water in an unimpeachable way. And, and um, I looked at, is there a particular personality configuration that makes people better than other people? No, there isn't, except that uh, right brain people do better than left brain people. And um, I, I, I began to realize from the research I was doing that that um, the key to opening to non-local consciousness is the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness, and that that's why meditators routinely do better than non-meditators, and why they teach meditation in martial art dojos in Japan or Tibetan lamaseries in, in uh, Tibet or uh, Buddhist uh, temples in India or whatever. All of that, that all of these religions have figured this out that the way you open to non-local consciousness is you have to be able to attain and sustain intention focused awareness so that the neurological stimulus that normally takes up most of your thinking it's hot, it's cold, you know it's light, it's dark, it's noisy, it's quiet um, that fades into the background and you can open to this non-local aspect of consciousness. Everybody has it. Um, 
it's a part of it's it's fundamental to your nature of being a human being or any other kind of living organism and um that uh there are two components to it one is people are born with a particular capacity to do it just like you know some people are born at being really good at playing the piano or playing golf or whatever in the same way some people are better at remote viewing there's an innate ability and then you have to develop this discipline of attaining and sustaining intention focused awareness there are lots of ways to do that but that's how you learn how to express your potential like any other human skill and uh, so out of all that research came uh, uh, insights into how this works what the nature of consciousness is i it i began to study things like intention uh, the role of numinosity the role of entropic process so we didn't know what we don't know what the mechanism of consciousness is how it works but we do know some variables about how to work with it so that you can increase a person's ability to access it and when you design an experiment if you factor in properly things like intention numinosity and and entropic process you can get much better results right so um from everything you've listed there and your history in the phenomena it seems that there is it's effectively case closed that there is phenomena that takes place of non-local consciousness and yet it seems that um phenomena such as uh, remote viewing for want of a better term is very very much seen as pseudoscientific and effectively woo-woo nonsense with uh, various well that's claiming. because that's a form of willful ignorance the reason that consciousness has not been part of science was that because is because of the council of trent between 1545 and 1563 the roman catholic curia that was the, the roman catholic church was becoming very concerned about the development of science and also the beginning of the reformation movements so between 1545 and 1563 they had 25 meetings of the Curia, and they finally issued an edict in which they said, um, anything that has to do with spirit, read consciousness, that's our world. And anything that has to do with physicality, that's the, you guys in science have that. But if you cross over into our world and we get hold of you, we'll torture you and kill you and burn you alive and that's how the inquisition got started and as a result of that science and consciousness got got bifurcated and for the next several hundred years until the end of the 19th century when um uh psychiatry psychology anthropology uh, sociology parapsychology all begin within about 50 year period because it became clear to researchers that um that consciousness had it had to be included it was a factor that had to be considered 
1931, Max Planck, the father of quantum mechanics, was asked, what have you learned by the, a reporter from the Observer newspaper? And he said, what I've learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. Space-time, physical reality, arises from consciousness, not consciousness from physical reality. Uh, consciousness is the fundamental. And Einstein said, you know, consciousness is the fundamental and that what we call reality is an optical delusion. And Planck and Pauli and Schrodinger and Heisenberg all came to the same conclusion. So when you talk to people who think it's crazy or woo-woo, basically you're talking to people who are willfully ignorant. And I just don't have any interest in it. I'm not, you know, it's a debate that I'm not interested in because it's a form of ignorance and I'm not interested in pr promoting ignorance. So when you talk to people and they tell you this is all woo-woo or it can't exist or any of that, basically you're talking to a person who hasn't bothered to actually look at the data. Mm. Um, well, and the other thing is that it has become clear if you look at the reincarnation research or the near-death research that there is continuity of consciousness. That is, consciousness exists prior to incarnation, during incarnation, and after corporeal death. Mm. How, how confident do you believe from all the research combined into one can we say that um, we're justified to believe that conclusion? Well, I don't know. How many thousand experiments do you need? Yes. I mean, indeed. I just think that's a stupid question, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but it is one that a lot of people... Oh, raise. yes, absolutely. It's an enormous amount of willful ignorance. Uh, of course. I, you know, I have been on several times I've been asked to debate um, people who hold that position. In one occasion, they didn't show up for the debate. Uh, in the other one, they got so embarrassed that they left the stage. It's just, I'm not, you know, I, yes, many people still believe that consciousness arises from biophysiology. Yes, I get it. And that um, there is no continuity of consciousness and that um, uh, there is nothing outside of, of materialist physics. But that's not even a position that many physicists hold anymore because what's happening is uh, we are now coming to the culmination that began in the end of the 19th century in which consciousness is being considered to be fundamental and causal, as Planck told us in 1931. Yes. Quantum mechanics is often used... Um or it's often seen as any any person that uh, proposes consciousness to be, um, if we take the double, the famous double slit experiment, for instance, uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of that, which states that consciousness collapses the wave function. Um, many critics of that uh, believe that anybody that comes to that conclusion are essentially um, misrepresenting many um, quantum yeah, uh, physicists' I, opinions. Know, I mean, Darren, <laughs> you know, again... Uh, many people believe uh, that Donald Trump was sent by God to rule America. I mean, I, you know, what is the response to that? 
grotesque ignorance? If you look at the research, that's the point. If you look at the research, there is no question that consciousness is limited to space-time. All of the remote viewing research demonstrates that people can describe things routinely with about 75% accuracy that they just couldn't know normally or through any of their normal senses. And the distance doesn't make any difference and nor does time. I mean, when someone describes Cleopatra's palace that no one has seen for 2000 years. Yes. Um, what, 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 how can you go around that? How do you get around that? Mm -hmm. Yes. How, mm -hmm. how do you get around somebody describing where Christopher Columbus's caravel from his fourth voyage is? How do you get around? I mean, I, I, there's so many of these experiments. When I talk to people who take the position that you're arguing, and I understand why you're doing that, um, and just for the record, I don't hold that. that uh, I, no, I, I agree completely with you. Uh, no, I yeah. understand what you're doing. Um, when you press them, well, I mean, I'll give you an example. I, <laughs> years ago, back in the 80s, ABC Network asked myself and a, 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 a denier named Dan Dennett and a and a neuroscientist named Jerry Levy to debate uh, Ed May from SRI and myself. And um, so they got, you can just picture it happened in Palm Springs in California. So there's like four or 500 news people from the network, news, news managers, reporters, that kind of thing who are in this hall and we're having this debate. And so Ed goes first and he explains what they're doing at SRI. And, and then Dennett stands up and says, uh, this is all nonsense and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's all, you know, all the usual stuff. And so then it's my turn. And I said to him, you have such strong feelings about this. Uh, that I assume that you have studied it closely in order to develop the position that you've developed. And so why don't, rather than just have this sort of abstract argument, why don't we take a particular study that we both know and uh, you tell me what you think is wrong with it and I'll respond. And without thinking, and I'm sure it embarrassed him without, without thinking, he immediately said in the most condescending tone, you don't think I actually read this stuff, do you? And then there was complete silence in the room, and then there were titters, and then guffaws, and then the whole thing broke down into laughter, and he got up and left. Yes, yes. He rather lost his credibility there himself. Well, I mean... So whenever you hear people say that there is no continuity of consciousness and that, um, uh, I don't know, mostly the arguments now are about, did you use the right statistics? See, I, I, the reason I was attracted to the archaeological work was, first of all, I could use an electronic uh, surveillance technique like 
ground penetrating radar, proton precession magnetometers, side scan sonars. I could use an electronic search technique to see if you could locate the site electronically. And in every instance, you could not. In every instance, no exception. Um, that one thing. And the other thing was that you didn't have to get into statistics. If somebody describes to you, for instance, in DeepQuest, which I was mentioning to you, the, the DeepQuest, the remote viewers said it was a sailing ship, but it had a, um, a kind of steam engine on the deck, early donkey steam engine, and it blew up and set fire to the ship, and that's why the ship sank. That turns out to be all correct. And they described this thing in great detail, drew pictures of it. And, and then uh, Hella Hammond said, oh, and also you're going to find, I mean, uh, a large granite block about five by four by six. And she drew a picture of it. Now you could say, well, if you're going to describe a ship and you describe an anchor, well, that may be right. But I mean, ships always have anchors. But if you're going to describe a large granite block that's four by five by six, um, you do not expect to hear somebody say that. Or give you another example. Uh, we found a ship in the Bahamas, the, uh, the, uh, the Beaks K, uh, a ship. And uh, people described the ship in great detail, how wh where it was, and, and we couldn't locate it with side scan sonar. And but it was there as exactly where they put it and exactly as they described it. And they described things down to five eighths of an inch. They're little glass bottles that had medicine and said, well, you're going to find this box that's got these little glass vials that are filled with powder. And we did. Or in another case in Egypt, um, I, I was challenged by deniers and they said, I wanted to dive in the Eastern Harbor to find Cleopatra's palace, Mark Anthony's palace, the lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And they said, before we'll let you do that, you have to prove to us that you can actually do something with this. And I said, okay, what do you want? And they said, well, there's a buried city that, that's gone, it's buried, but that was called Maria that's about 40 kilometers outside of Alexandria, Egypt. And we want you to locate the city and we want you to locate a single building in the city. And the single building has to have certain characteristics. And so we, okay. So we got about 1700 square kilometers to search. And it took us about three hours and George McMullen, Hella Hammond, they located the building. They staked it out. They put stakes in the ground where the corners were. They said how deep it would be before we would find it, that it was a Christian building, not a, not a Roman building. And uh, that we would find, uh, they had asked us to locate uh, tiles. And they said, and you'll find these little red, black and white tiles, little, these little tiles. They're about five-eighths of an inch across, and most of them have been taken away, but some of them are still there, and they have plaster on one side, and they're shiny and smooth on the other. And all of that completely contradicted what the archaeologists thought. They were convinced the building was not, couldn't possibly be a Christian building, 
that uh, nobody had ever seen such tiles and on and on. And all of it turned out to be true. You can, again, you can watch this happen. Go up to YouTube or go to my personal website, stephanaschwartz.com, and you can watch them. You can watch George and Hella locate the building, and you can watch the excavation and everything that they predicted comes true. Right. So it doesn't yes. require statistics. No, no. That's far beyond the realm of needing to invoke statistics at all. Yes. Just for the depth of it. And that's why I did it. Yeah. Yes, certainly. So um, I want to ask you about something which I can imagine what your answer will be, but I want to ask it because it's a very a very common rebuttal you hear about this kind of subject, and that is Mr. Um, James Randi and his <laughs> million-dollar prize. <laughs> That's Whenever I mention anything about this arguing for a non-local consciousness or mediumship or near-death critical perception, I'm always meted with, well, no one's ever won the Randi Foundation uh, prize regarding... Also, the SRI experiments with That's Yuri not Geller. That's a legitimate prize. Things like that. It's, it's, it, the whole thing was a scam. You know how I met James Randi? <laughs> I knew about him. I was at a conference, uh, a Parapsychology Association conference, and this flashy, he looked like a, he looked like some kind of hustler, came up to me and introduced himself as James Randi. He had these Burns, what are what used to be called Burnside, kind oh, of yes, facial yeah. hair, um, yeah. and um, he began trying to quiz me about uh, about the SRI guys. Mm -hmm. And I looked mm -hmm. over, and I could see flashing in his jacket pocket was this little red light going off and on. And I realized that what he was doing was trying to get me to say something negative about them that he could record. So I reached in his pocket and pulled out his tape recorder and said, oh my goodness, you have a tape recorder and you're recording me. And I, I made the tapes, I reversed the tape. And then I went testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. This, we were only about 30 seconds into this conversation and erased everything that had been done, which made him furious and then handed the recorder back to him. And that's James Randi. The whole thing was a scam. He, yeah, he got a MacArthur Fellowship, sure, because the, he was willing to do the dirty work that other deniers weren't willing to do. And he created this bogus prize, uh, which nobody ever won because it wasn't a real prize. And I mean, the, the whole thing was bogus. He was just another grifter who was... Uh, you know, he'd found out that you could work his circuit. That was a, you could make a career out of being a denier and, and other deniers were happy to let you do the dirty work and, and they didn't have to put their names into it. And uh, so that's the kind of person he was. What can I tell you? Yes. And I mean, to, to his credit, he was very successful at doing it. And uh, well, he was know. successful with certain people. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I yes. never took him seriously because he was such an obvious grifter. But, you know, yes, people did. Sure. Yes, yes. But and, not, you know, let, me, let me also say, what you discover when you, I've also done a great deal of research about why people believe or don't believe. I suggest to you, you need to look at some work by, well, first you need to read Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, 
because Kuhn describes exactly how paradigms change. And you need to look at Dan Kahan's work up at Yale because he describes why scientists, not, not the first tier, but the second and third tier scientists, for them, it's much more important that there be group acceptance than that they, that they endorse or even uh, entertain uh, something that is outside of the paradigm. And so that's why most people, most second and third tier scientists don't, uh, you know, can uh, can be deniers, I guess, skeptics. Yes, yes, yes. But if you look um, at the first tier people, the people that make the breakthroughs, the moments of genius that change things forever, what you find is that they almost universally um, support the idea of non-local consciousness because they've had non-local consciousness experiences. You know, Poincaré is walking across the street and he has a vision that solves the mathematical problems that he's been working with. Descartes has three dreams in Ulm, Germany in 1619 that change his whole understanding of how geometry and algebra interact. And, and out of these three dreams, he writes his great opus. Uh, Tesla is walking across Central Park when he uh, has a vision of the electric motor and goes back to his lab and tells his engineers, this is what I want you to build, not prototype and test, just build me this. And they build it and he turns it on and that's the electric motor. Or you have Einstein says that the general and spe uh, special theories of relativity came to him after he'd been sick and he was whiling away an afternoon in a canoe. Or you have Jonas Salk who says, uh, I, I asked him, where did you get the idea for the polio vaccine? And he said, in a dream. So when you talk to first tier people, what you discover is that moments of genius are just like moments of spiritual epiphany are just like uh, remote viewing experiences. The difference is in the uh, context and intention. So scientists, their desire is to get insights into how the world works, and that's the kind of experience they have. Uh, spiritual pilgrims are trying to have a transcendent experience. That's the kind of experience they have. And remote viewers are trying to describe the teacup that's hidden in a closet a thousand miles away, and that's the kind of experience they have. But it's the same experience opening to non-local consciousness. Yes. So um, how how long and how best do you think um, we should approach it? Or, or to phrase the question, I suppose, in a better way, in a non-ridiculous way, um, how, how do you think it's best for scientists to approach this phenomena in the most productive way to, to begin to shift that paradigm to accept this Well, data. the paradigm is shifting because if you look at the research, uh, for instance, you take a guy like Andrew Newberg who created um, neurotheology. I mean, what he discovered was that uh, when people are going through uh, religious services where they're focusing their attention, that all their brains become entrained or you look at the work of Gene Ochterberg, for instance, who was doing uh, healing studies with Kahuna priests in Hawaii. And she discovered that when the priests 
were the kahunas were focusing uh, healing intention on people who were in MRIs that a very particular part of their brain lit up and it only happened when they were expressing healing intention. Or you can look at the work of William Browd, who uh, discovered that people, when, you, when, when people are being stared at, even though they don't know they're being stared at, their brains react. I mean, I can, it's on and on and on. It's, there's a huge corpus of research about this that, um, that makes it very clear that the reality of non-local consciousness and particularly the continuity of consciousness. You know, when you, the, if you look at the work at the University of Virginia started by Ian Stevenson, now being done by Jim Tucker, particularly the research in which they have uh, show that children who had traumatic physical um, events occur in a previous life are born with birthmarks or scar tissue where that event occurred um, or you or that they can recall things that they couldn't possibly know that um, turn out to be true. I mean when you look at it uh, or you look at for instance the near-death research of Pim Van Lommel or Bruce Grayson who show that that um, People who have near-death experiences uh, are brain dead and they couldn't possibly be having those experiences because their brains are not working. And yet they have these very detailed experiences in which they can describe things that they couldn't possibly know that occurred while they were having a near-death experience. So you can just you go on and on and on, whether it's therapeutic intention, whether it's remote viewing whether it's near-death experiences, you can look at, for instance, uh, even down to, th for instance, I did a study in which um, I, had, I took a bottle of wine and split it into two carafes. I had one carafe be the focus of healing intention, meditation by a group of meditators, and the other be um, uh, just a control and then I would give the two carafes to somebody and say, have a party and, and I'm, I'm going to buy all this wine and I want to know which, which of these two wines, it's really one wine, which of these two wines is the best? And uh, in 11 out of 12 cases, they pick the wine that was the subject of a uh, focus of meditation. I mean, it just, there's just so much research. It's, that there is that certainly. arguing that it doesn't exist is just i mean it's absurd it's mm. just a, uh, it's, it's, it's not much yeah it doesn't seem to be so much arguing that it doesn't occur it's more arguing that it's it it will be rooted back to some sort of physical mechanism like you say about the um the sense of being stared at activates a certain part of the brain or a certain part of the brain is activated when performing healing someone who comes at this from a physicalist point of view will still say well that shows you that that part of the brain is creating this this um illusion or whatever it be. well except that when you look at the protocol that's not possible although it seems they rarely do look well they don't, read the, they the don't read the data of course they don't read the mm. research that's the that's point my common experience yeah well, the, the 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 main thing that you find out about deniers and skeptics is their mediocrity 
and also uh, there there are a lot of ethical issues of people who just don't behave properly. Yes, yes, especially from the safety of a keyboard. I noticed. Well, yes, but I um, mean they just they don't bother to read the research or they don't tell the truth about it. So the the the, the main thing that stands out about that kind of stuff is that um, it's mediocre. It's just shoddy research, shoddy intellectual thought. I mean, you'd look at Daryl Bems, for instance, Visions of the Future experiment in which the, a guy named Wagonmaker attacks him and then Wagonmaker is the guy that he cites as the as the basis for his attack writes and says, you've completely misrepresented um, my work. So yes, I, mean, I read just, that quite recently. That was quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on. The, the hallmark of the denier is mediocrity. Yes. So how um, should we, as honest researchers who, who do dig through this stuff and, and try to look at it objectively, how should we deal with people like that, just completely ignore them? Well, that's more or less what I do. I don't really, you know, I mean, I've, as I said, I've three times I've been asked to debate them. And um, it's just it's absurd. It's like a carnival. Yeah, it wouldn't really be a debate. It'd be more just I, talking yeah, I, to you know, I just don't. Yeah. Now, I will also say, because of the way I do my research, uh, this is important, I guess, I don't get attacked. Nobody's ever attacked my work. Because in order to, I do it, first of all, I do it in front of lots of people. It's witnessed by all sorts of people who are particular experts in whatever it is I'm doing. I film it. I create an unimpeachable chronology. I, you know, all of the predictive remote viewing material is notarized and turned over to a third party. So there's absolutely no question about the that you didn't make it up after the fact or, you know, whatever, that kind of criticism. So I've never actually been attacked. I don't have a lot of interaction with it. I don't really pay much attention to it. I just find it um, kind of embarrassing to tell you the truth because it's so intellectually shoddy. Yes, absolutely. I'd agree. And as you say, you know, we have to take all these phenomena, remote viewing, near-death phenomena um, terminal lucidity and, and others we have to take them as a whole package and the fact that they all all these phenomena point in one direction shows that there is something that must be seriously considered and as well with, with your research done you know in the way it is in the perfect in the perfect way adds an incredible amount to weight to that and you know i wish a lot more people were, were familiar with your work well i do what i can you know i write books i make films i publish hundreds of papers what can i tell you yes yes it's just yeah. yeah i suppose it's the stubbornness of those that are insistent that this kind of thing is impossible preemptively yeah. good for them i don't care i hope you enjoyed this episode of the seeking eye life exploration podcast if you did and would like to continue following my research please consider subscribing to my youtube channel and following the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast providers. You can also join our Facebook discussion group. You can find the link to this and other Seeking Eye online profiles at seeking-eye.com.
Thank you.